Our New Testament reading comes from the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. Listen now for the word of God. It can be found on page 980 of your pew Bible in the New Testament section. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, Their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of the Lord. I like to talk to my kids about what they're learning in school. With Virginia, my rising sixth grader, in many instances and with many subjects, I am in way over my head. The TV show you may have seen or heard about, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader?, often applies to me. But Virginia and I both love literature, history, and interesting facts on just about any topic. Last spring, we were driving home and stopped at the traffic light at Gaskins and Patterson in the West End. The Adams family lives out that way, and I remember saying to her, Virginia, I feel like I spend my whole life at this intersection. She responded with her usual wit, that's because you do, Dad. You'll never guess what I learned in math today. The average person spends two years at traffic lights during their lifetime, especially if they're in an urban area. She wasn't done, and I quote, On average, women spend two years of their lives looking in the mirror, and men spend six months. (laughs) We can certainly get into an interesting gender discussion of whether this last one is true. People spend three years, three years of their lives in the bathroom, and the youngest generation is spending three years of their lives doing nothing but texting. I've been very troubled by these statistics since she told me. How can I be wasting two years of my life at traffic lights, even if there's a good song on the radio? Anywhere from six months to two years in front of a mirror. This prompted the question, how much do we watch television and spend time on the internet during our lives? 
So I did some more poking around. At Cal, Cal State Northridge, where my sister teaches, a professor has done a thorough analysis of the Nielsen ratings, and he conservatively estimates that the average American spends four hours a day watching television. If you do the math, that means in an average lifespan, more than 12 of those years will be, will be spent glued to the TV. Other statistical studies of our screen habits estimates that the average American now spends seven to eight hours a day in front of a screen of some sort. Of course, this varies widely from one person to another, but conservatively, that adds up to well over 20 years of, one person's, of one's life in front of a screen. Now, if we combine screen time with those years at traffic lights in front of the mirror and texting, we only have a few years of doing other stuff. It's therefore impossible to argue that we are not enslaved to technology in some form or another. Some of you will no doubt point out to me in line after the service the benefits of technology. We can expedite shopping, have less expensive and varied reading at our fingertips. We can write books and articles ourselves, keep up with loved ones and friends all over the world through Skype, and engage in important online discourse about critical issues facing our community, nation, and world. All of that is no doubt true. But when looking into the mirror or staring into a colored box in our living rooms, these are activities that make us passive participants, tethered to objects or social constructs that keep us apart from each other, from genuine human interaction that uplifts and sustains our common life. How can we find a way to interact and come together in mutual solidarity when so many of our years involve such passive pursuits? As always, we turn to Scripture to help us with this question. You might want to reopen your pew Bible to the New Testament lesson from James 1 for a few minutes because I'm going to be referring to it a great deal. The letter of James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's the closest of any New Testament book to being a wisdom text. Since the author is so interested in how to live faithfully in the world and not removed from it, how to apply the wondrous promise of life in Christ to everyday human experience. Like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, the letter of James has humanity as the basic point of orientation. This is not a missionary text designed to convert people, but it's a model for faithful and generous living within the church. The goal here is to instruct the listener how to interact with other persons in a way that is both compassionate to one's neighbor and faithful to God. By way of comparison, the closest New Testament parallel is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So let's unpack this morning's passage from James a bit. The author commands his listeners, but be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves in verse 22. The emphasis here is on striving towards an ethical life, a life lived out in the world and not removed from it. Withdrawal from the society is not an option for the letter of James, since such action would make a person self-absorbed rather than living in community. Our Reformed tradition insists on social action and resonates with this perspective in James. One of the more interesting aspects of the New Testament lesson is the mirror reference in verses 22, I mean 23 and 24. 
For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. They look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. Exactly what does this mean? Does the individual in the letter of James look in the mirror and notice that his appearance is shoddy, that he needs to shave and comb his hair but refuses to do so? His reluctance to spruce up his appearance then mirrors his lack of initiative in promoting God's justice in the world, choosing instead to remain on the sidelines. There are several, there are several ways to read these difficult verses, but I think this is the most plausible interpretation. I just mentioned how often we look into the mirror during our lifetimes. How often, but how often do we look at ourselves only to walk away and forget what we just saw, imagining a different us, perhaps better, perhaps worse, but doing nothing to improve it? The scenario in James supposes that we look in the mirror regularly, but always walk away without correcting whatever is there. The cosmetics magnate Estee Lauder said, A good mirror is the most important accessory in a woman's life. My friend and colleague at the seminary, Francis Taylor Ginch, found this quote amusing and said that actually Lauder was right, just not the way she meant it. I quote, All of us, men and women, need a good mirror that will help us see ourselves as we really are. Francis is not suggesting that we stare at ourselves in the mirror for longer periods so that we can make a better assessment of our physical appearance and improve upon it. The passage from James tells us quite clearly where we should look in verse 25. Those who look or gaze, I would say, the better translation would be gaze, into the perfect law of liberty. In other words, we are to focus our gaze on God's truth to the content of the scriptures, and this can liberate us from self-absorption, selfishness, and discord from focusing on superficial matters. The advice advice in James is very clear about how we accomplish such a goal. We are to be active in the world, but not self-righteous. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness, verse 19. And just in case we didn't get the point, the author of James hammers it home in verse 26 with a reminder about the dangers of the tongue. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Friends, we live in an age of righteous indignation. However we got here, everyone is convinced that they are right And not only that they are correct, but that they need to prove to the world that the other side is wrong. Can you get around the television dial without witnessing at least nine different shouting matches? Whether the topic is religion, politics, the personal lives of celebrities, or just how good the offensive line of the Redskins is going to be this year. It is fitting to discuss James and intemperate, intemperate speech on the weekend between the two political conventions. Everyone is now talking about Clint Eastwood and the chair. One recent graduate from Union emailed to tell me he thought I should preach to an empty chair today. 
Everyone is talking about whether the Romney campaign erred in inviting him to speak. Just who was more truthful about the closing of the auto plant in Janesville, Wisconsin, Paul Ryan's hometown? Which side is being more accurate about the $714 million, I'm sorry, billion dollars in Medicare savings? We can be certain that by next week, the arguments will include a lot of political banter about who said what at the Democratic convention and which side is correct. These shouting matches tend to be circular, with no clear progress towards any solution and each side retreating to their own corner on a regular basis to celebrate some apparent victory. Lost in the perpetual shouting matches seems to be any effort at mutual understanding, at building relationships, and coming together to focus our collective energy on positive change. Often we are so busy proving we are correct that we never listen to those with whom we disagree. This is unequivocally the case in some of the painful conversations within our denomination in recent decades. Too often, certitude trumps meaningful dialogue. Thoughtful discourse loses out to invective, and caricature wins out over fair assessment. The capacity to control our speech has been threatened even more by living in a wired world. In many cases of online interaction, especially when we have no plans to see someone, a harsh email or Facebook post does not carry the same consequences. Living in the age of social media makes us even more susceptible to careless and hurtful words because pushing the sin button is so much easier than delivering, another, uh, than delivering a harsh language to another person's face. I am just as guilty as anyone of needing to be correct most, of, most or all of the time, of getting the last word in, of making sure that the other person knows that they're wrong and I'm right. But a friend of mine who is a psychologist likes to say, you can be right or you can be in a relationship, but not both. The letter of James accurately conveys that the tongue is the most dangerous weapon in our arsenal, far more powerful than any physical blows we might inflict. How many arguments could be averted? How much more productive might our common dialogue be if these words were uttered more often? I was wrong. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Or I'm very much interested in your opinion. Tell me why you see things in the way that you do. James reminds us what the Christian life should look like and it is one modeled on the compassionate nature of the Torah in the Hebrew scriptures. In verse 127 he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to care for widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What does it mean to be stained by the world, and how do we keep ourselves unstained by it? As Fred just described, if you're like me, when you read this verse, you probably think first of a clothes stain. You know that there is a high degree of certainty that when you buy a new item of clothing, a messy pasta meal is in your near future. And some of that pasta dish will find its way onto your new shirt, pants, or dress. Even if James is not talking about one's wardrobe, the image of being stained is a helpful one. If we are going to live in the world, we are certain to be affected by the desire for earthly treasures. 
Yet James warns us not to conform our lives to the world's temptations, the desire to receive acclamation, win an argument, mount up possessions for ourselves that will not survive. These are distractions from our primary focus. Once again, the letter of James is quite specific about how we focus our attention to faithful living, caring for orphans and widows in distress, looking out for those on the margins, making sure that we are active in promoting justice in the world. The author of James takes his cue from the Old Testament on this point, believing that justice means fairness in the society with special attention to the less fortunate. When we look at such passages, it becomes apparent that the letter of James is not interested as much in doctrine as it is in practice. Too often in discussions about what is proper in churches, we get into debates debates concerning the theology of those we disagree with, with whether they are reading the tradition or a biblical passage correctly, with the appropriateness of particular creeds or confessions, and whether someone understands the doctrine of the Trinity. To be sure these are important issues, yet James focuses more on the practice of faith, on the living out of the Christian life in the world, and all of us becoming doers of the word rather than just spectators. The author of James would agree that nothing I say in this sermon can measure in importance to the shoes that surround me, to the drive that we're concluding today at Second Presbyterian Church, that our walk-in ministry, relationship with Chimborazo School, our partnerships in Malawi, Caritas, all of our outreach ministries, these are not tangential to our religious beliefs, but the most sincere and important expression of those beliefs. Nothing that gets said at either the Republican convention last week or the Democratic convention this week can measure up in importance to the relief efforts taking place in the Gulf Coast to help those affected by Hurricane Isaac. To be stained by the world is to get caught up in passive or argumentative pursuits that pull us away from the central task of the Christian life. To engage one another, to look out for one another, to direct our gaze outward. Just as we talk about interesting statistics in our house, Harry Potter is also a popular topic. The first book in the Harry Potter series has a scene in which there's a room containing the mirror of Irised, with Irised being desire spelled backwards. The headmaster of the Hogwarts Academy, Dumbledore, explains that a person looks into this magical mirror and sees his or her innermost desires. They might see things they expect to see or find out that their most fervent wish is not what they thought. Harry sees his deceased parents in the mirror, only they are smiling at him and clearly enjoying his company. The implication is that the mirror of Irised gives the viewer a window into his or her soul. If we had access today to a mirror of Irised, what would each of us see? I'm sure answers to this question would vary widely and some of them would be surprising. But it is a relevant question in light of this morning's lesson. The letter of James tells us what our desires should be and where we should direct our gaze. It encourages us to gaze upon the perfect law, which does not mean a set of legal dictates, a rigid set of legal dictates, but God's message of compassion and mercy as revealed in the pages of Scripture. Focusing our attention on this will bring us closer to God 
more active practitioners of the Christian life, and more able to look beyond our own image and to the needs of others. This type of gaze is not constraining activity. It's one that, pull, one that pulls us away from satisfying our innermost cravings. It can, in fact, be a liberating act to focus our attention outward. This idea of liberation from selfish desires expressed throughout the Bible, perhaps most vividly in the book of Psalms, especially Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward." Friends, the psalmist declares that focusing one's gaze on God does not make one detached from self-actualization, but it liberates us to become subject to one another. Paul expresses the same thought in his letter to the Galatians. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Some of you may know that I taught at a college in South India back in the 90s, Bishop Heber College. This institution is affiliated with the Church of South India, the largest Protestant denomination, and it reserved... Bishop Heber Kalab reserved one of its dormitories for low-caste Christians, often called Dalits, the absolute lowest on the totem pole, and they couldn't, who could not afford college but needed the, needed the administration to help them out. They lived in the same dormitory, and my small apartment sat next to it. Each morning, these students would rise before dawn to clean their hostel and make breakfast. They did their own cooking. They arose early so that they could have a daily worship service with musical instruments, lots of songs, and time for fellowship. I would attend the worship sometimes, and I was always amazed by the mutual support in the room. If I ever asked them how they were doing that morning, they would respond, Mr. Sam, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I am blessed. I hope you are as well. I have never been anywhere before or since where people started their day with such a refreshed spirit that liberated them to get through whatever they had to accomplish. And the ability to turn their daily attention to God, to avoid being stained by the world through their love for one another. So may it be with all of us. Amen.